Hear the word of the Lord. Mark 1, 21 through 35. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Pray together. Heavenly Father, we come together this morning to worship you. God, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have to fellowship with one another and deepen our relationships with each other. But Lord, even more, we are grateful for this opportunity to delight in you, to enjoy you, to worship you, and to learn from you. And God, we pray as we are now pivoting our attention to your holy word, that God, you would use the the, the scriptures to actually speak into our lives. As we study here the life and ministry of Jesus, we pray that you would continue to form us into the image of Christ. God, we pray that this time in your word would bear much fruit in our hearts, much fruit in our minds, much fruit in our lives, and much fruit in this church family, Lord. So God, would you please bless our time together in your word. Use it for your glory and our good. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. So last week marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That's what we looked at together in the text of Scripture, above what we've read today. And in that passage, Jesus began his ministry by publicly preaching the gospel. He began preaching the gospel in the region of Galilee, which is up in the northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. And he called his first four disciples. They were four fishermen. And these disciples began to follow after Jesus, and they began to learn from him. But now, with today's reading, we're seeing Jesus' ministry in full swing. What we've read together today could be described as a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. The day begins for us with Jesus entering into the synagogue in a city called Capernaum. 
Capernaum is located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, it was a city at that time, but we would, we would think of it more as a village. It was a small place, but it's right there on the seacoast. And it's the hometown of Andrew and Simon, two of Jesus' first disciples. He begins the day at the synagogue, and he ends it at their house, the house of Simon and Andrew. And the day, as we just learned, was action-packed. There's so much that happens in this day in the life of Jesus. And I would venture to guess that most of us had our attention drawn to the miraculous aspects of Jesus' ministry in the text that we had read for us, whether that was Jesus driving this demon out of this demon-possessed man, or Jesus healing people, starting with Andrew's mother-in-law, and then him healing many other people. Significantly, however, our author, Mark, the author of this gospel, he wants to draw our attention initially Not to Jesus' miracles, but to Jesus' teaching. Look again at verse 21. He writes this, he says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Jesus, again, enters into this town of Capernaum. He goes into their synagogue, and he starts teaching the people. Now, a synagogue, if you're unaware was the gathering place in a city where the Jews would worship. It was an assembly hall of sorts. And it would function kind of like a church functions for Christians today. We come and we gather in this church building. We read the scriptures. We pray. We worship here. This is what a synagogue was like in all of the different areas that the Jews lived. And it was commonplace in the life of a synagogue that if you had a a guest teacher or rabbi who came into town that that person would have an opportunity to speak and teach and read from the scriptures and so this is the opportunity that Jesus here is being afforded in Capernaum he takes this opportunity to stand up and begin to teach and we want to pay attention to the fact that the exorcism of this demon which is again incredible for us to read about is actually set into the larger context of Jesus teaching And the people's response to him as a teacher. Before the encounter with the demon, look at verse 22. The people are astonished at his teaching. And then after driving out the demon, in verse 27, they were all amazed, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. I say all of this to say that right out of the gate, Mark wants to draw our attention to Jesus as a teacher. And this is something that Mark will emphasize over and over and over again throughout his gospel, his telling of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. One commentator says that the word for teaching occurs in various forms 35 times in the gospel of Mark, and in all but one, Jesus is the subject. So again, Mark's presentation of Jesus is Jesus as a teacher. He emphasizes his teaching ministry. And this should have significant implications for our ministry today as you and I seek to do ministry like Jesus himself. Our ministry should emphasize the teaching of the word of God. With this in mind, pay attention again to the great commission that Jesus gives to his followers found in Matthew 28. This is Matthew 28, 19 and 20. 
Jesus says to you, if you're his follower today, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice there in the Great Commission that the teaching of Jesus is central to our discipleship. As we go and we make disciples, Jesus is saying, baptize them and then teach them all that I have commanded you. We cannot grow, we cannot mature, we cannot become fruitful followers of Jesus without a constant and continuous stream of teaching. This is why at Apostles Church, our liturgy or our worship service as we gather allocates a lot of time for the teaching of the scriptures. It is through the ongoing teaching of the word of God that we grow and that we mature and that we become fruitful. And so Jesus here is introduced by Mark as a teacher here in Capernaum. What's interesting though is that the passage itself, although it introduces Jesus as a teacher, And although it includes some miraculous events, the passage that we've read this morning is actually about Jesus's authority. Notice with me that Mark doesn't tell us anything about the content of Jesus's teaching, right? We don't learn anything about what he said in the synagogue that day. So he tells us nothing about the content of Jesus's teaching. Rather, he tells us about the character of of Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches as one with what? Authority. So what we're meant to see from this whole episode is the unrivaled authority of Jesus. In fact, that's the sermon title for this morning. Unrivaled authority. We, in this passage that we've read, are going to see the unrivaled authority of Jesus through three different things. First, it's through his authoritative teaching in verses 21 and 22. Next, it's in his authority over demons in verses 23 through 28. And finally, it's through his authority over disease in verses 29 through 34. So let's take these in turn. We begin and we, 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 we come to see Jesus here as a teacher, yes, but one who teaches with authority. His teaching is authoritative. Let's reread verse 21 and then add 22 to it. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. We'll stop there. So we are told that the reaction of the people in the synagogue that day to Jesus as he got up and he taught them was one of astonishment. Their jaw dropped. They heard Jesus speak and they heard him teach and they were literally left in awe. They were astonished at his teaching. The people in Capernaum had never heard anyone teach like Jesus before. And that's not because these people hadn't heard a lot of teaching from the Bible. These Jews would go to synagogue every Sabbath. They had the scriptures read to them continuously. They had heard many, many teachers. In fact, there's a contrast here between Jesus and the scribes who did plenty of teaching in the synagogue. 
They had heard tons of teaching, many, many sermons in their lives, but they had never heard teaching like this before. It was completely different. And so the question becomes, what on earth was so unique about the teaching of Jesus? That it left these people who had heard so many teachings from the Bible before astonished and in awe. What was so unique? What was so inspiring? What arrested their attention and gripped their hearts? Well, the answer's right there for us in the text. Here's what was unique. It was the fact that he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, scribes were very, very important people in the religious life of Israel at this time. Scribes were basically the professional theologians. These guys had PhDs in theology. They were the ones teaching in the seminaries of that day, so to speak. Scribes actually served several roles, but one could say that they were the leading authorities on how to interpret the Old Testament. They were the ones who would say, this is what Moses meant. This is what the Old Testament meant. And their interpretations were as good as Scripture. In fact, over generations, their interpretations were actually brought on par with the Old Testament Scriptures themselves. Their interpretations existed in an oral tradition that was eventually written down after the life of Jesus. But at this time, it was just an oral tradition. And they would appeal to this oral tradition often. For example, fast forward a few chapters to Mark chapter 7. Jesus is having conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're very frustrated with Jesus because his disciples are not going along with all the traditions of the elders. And here's the, the, the thing that we read in Mark 7 verse 5. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, speaking of Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to, notice, not the scriptures, not the word of God. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus, in the very next verse or two verses later, is going to actually say, listen, you guys are setting aside the word of God for the doctrines of man. They had their own body of interpretation. Again, it's called the tradition of the elders that they would constantly appeal to. See, the scribes taught when they were in the synagogues by just appealing over and over again to the tradition of the elders and by quoting their rabbis who had come before them. So they would teach and they would, they would quote Moses first and then they would say, hey, Rabbi Hillel says, oh, and Rabbi Gamaliel says this and Rabbi Eleazar taught this, and they would just keep referring to this tradition that was handed down to them by previous scribes and teachers. Therefore, their method of teaching was an appeal to the authorities, the other scribes, the other rabbis. And yet on this day, in this small town of Capernaum, in the synagogue, comes this young 30-year-old carpenter, from Nazareth. And he's a teacher. And he preaches and he teaches them. And it's totally different from anything they've ever seen before. Here's this guy with no formal theological training. 
He didn't go to all of their schools. He wasn't educated the way that they were. And he comes in and the way that he teaches is so radically different from anything that people have seen before. And what was different about it was this. Jesus did not quote the authorities. He spoke as the authority. Do you understand the difference? They would quote the authorities. That's where their authority was derived from. Jesus just spoke as if he himself was the authority. Because he was. For example, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, look at how radical this is. Here's Jesus preaching and teaching the people. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He says to the people, You have heard that it was said of those, or to those of old, You shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, you guys have heard that it was said such and such. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. A few verses later in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, do you understand the gravity of this? Jesus's appeal to authority went no further than himself. Again, here's this 30-year-old man standing there and he's saying, listen, the scriptures say don't commit adultery, but I say to you, and he just adds his own teaching to this. And the people's jaws drop. They cannot believe that this man is not quoting from the tradition of the elders or leaning on somebody else's authority. He's speaking as one who has his own inherent authority. I mean, even the prophets would say, at least they would say, thus saith the Lord, and they deliver a word from God. Jesus just says, I say to you, and delivers a word from God. What must this mean then about the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth? Mark has already told us that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And because he's the Son of God, that means that he is the ultimate source of truth. No wonder Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, friends, I can assure you when Jesus said that, people's jaws dropped. What do you mean you are the way? What do you mean you are the truth and you are the life and nobody gets to the Father but through you? This is radical. This is earth shattering. Jesus speaks as one with authority and the people are astonished. Nobody had ever spoken this way before. And so his words rocked his hearers 2,000 years ago in the best kind of way. And the words of Jesus have continued having that effect on listeners throughout the centuries. I can still recall being 20 years old, with my whole life ahead of me, and hearing the words of Jesus, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? And what would a man give in return for his own soul? And I remember being cut to the heart. Nobody's words had ever pierced my heart the way that Jesus's had. And so by way of application, we need to be reminded here today, Christians, that we can preach and teach and speak with authority, 
not because we have our own inherent authority, but rather because we have access to the authoritative words of Jesus Christ. So we are capable of speaking with authority. I can't for the life of me understand why some preachers are light on the Bible and heavy on personal stories or quotes from the experts, whether they're secular or religious. Friends, our ability to preach with authority stems from our commitment to the word of God. That's what's authoritative. Now, if I come here and I stand and I share personal anecdotes with you for 35, 40 minutes, and I quote this psychologist and this sociologist and this celebrity, I might interest you, I might entertain you, I might inspire you in certain ways. But none of that will come with the authority of God that can actually transform your heart and your life. That authoritative communication comes through the words of Jesus Christ. That's the authority. And it's not just preachers who can miss this. Guys, we can do this through our own evangelism. We can be light on the Bible. As we seek to win other people to Jesus Christ. And we can think to ourselves wrongly that what will help lead this person to Jesus is philosophy and science and reasoned arguments. And of course there's a place for that if those are hurdles for people to have those discussions. But friends, we have got to share the words of God with them. If we're not sharing the word of God with them, our evangelism is going to fail. Plato and Aristotle cannot convert anybody. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing. So where does faith come? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have got to share the word of Christ with people if we hope for them to come to faith and be saved and know the Lord. We can also be light on the Bible in our discipleship of other people, or in attempting to counsel other people and help them. We can just talk from our own experiences as if our own experiences are somehow authoritative. And again, there's a place for that. If you've been through something and you've got personal experience that you can share to help a person, I'm not saying there's no place for that. But friends, I just want to remind you this morning that that's not ultimately going to be transformative in the most important ways. What people need from us as we help disciple them or as we help counsel them is they need us to point them to the word of God. It is the word of God that has the power to actually change people's hearts and lives. And so preaching and speaking with authority is preaching and speaking that unleashes the words of Christ. That's where the authority comes from. And so this morning, we see in the first place the unrivaled authority of Jesus through his authoritative teaching. But it goes on. We see this next by his authority over demons. And now we get to this incredible encounter with this demon-possessed man starting in verse 23. Here's what we read. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. 
And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So imagine the scene. Jesus is standing before the people, much like I'm standing before you today, and he's teaching them from the word of God. And suddenly comes this man who is demon-possessed. And this demon has control over this individual. I mean, it controls his speech. It can convulse his body. He's possessed by this demon. Pastor and author Jason Meyer has a helpful description of demonic possession. He says, demonic possession is the satanic counterfeit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The satanic counterfeit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the opposite. It's Satan's version of that. The Spirit comes to indwell believers and makes them more fully human. Holy and flourishing as God designed us to be. But demons enter into someone to take control of them in order to steal, kill, and destroy. And that was certainly the case with this poor man in Capernaum. Again, he was under the control and the influence of this demon. His speech being taken over. His body being under the control of this demon. You could say it this way. His life was being lived under the authority of the powers of darkness. But suddenly, everything's going to change for this man. Because what happens here is this demon that has possessed this man comes into the presence of one greater than himself. And you can tell he's immediately terrified. He knows who Jesus is. And he knows what Jesus is capable of. He calls him the Holy One of God and he tells Jesus, or he asked Jesus, are you here to destroy us in verse 24? He knows Jesus is the Holy One of God and, and this Jesus could destroy us if he wanted to right now. The demon knows who this is. It's very interesting that the first ones to recognize the true identity of Jesus in Mark's gospel are the demons. I said this last week, but I'll, I'll just repeat it here today. That this tells us that having some right beliefs about Jesus does not equal saving faith. The demons get it. Okay, the, the people in the synagogue have no clue who this guy is. The religious leaders, they get it all wrong about Jesus. The disciples, they're still in their infancy stages of recognizing and learning who this Jesus actually, fully, truly is. But the demon has no mistake about it. He knows exactly who Jesus is. In fact, look again at the very last verse that we're going to cover today in verse 34. It says the demons knew him. They know who Jesus is. He calls him the Holy One of God. In other words, the demon says that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who had been set apart by God. He is God's chosen vessel sent into the world to, according to 1 John 3, 8, destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus begins doing that right here in this synagogue. He's destroying the works of 
the devil. He rebukes this demon saying, be silent and come out of him. Which according to the experts, of course, based on what I said a moment ago, this means absolutely nothing to us now. But based on the experts, this could be translated, shut up and come out of him. So Jesus has a very stern word for this demon. He tells him to shut up and come out. And there is an immediate reaction here. The word of Jesus causes this demon to convulse this man one last time and to shriek in defeat and to leave this man alone. When all the people who had already been astonished by the teaching of Jesus now see this demon driven out of this man who was possessed, the fame of Jesus spreads far and wide. The people have seen things that they've never, ever seen before. Now, Jesus' defeat of this demon is both a demonstration of his authority over the demonic realm and at the same time a demonstration of his love for this precious man who was demon-possessed in Capernaum. What was at stake in this moment was not just a spiritual battle between the powers of God and the powers of the devil, although that that was going on. What was at stake here was the soul of a precious image-bearer of God who had been taken captive by the devil to do his will. In driving this demon out, Jesus restored this man's capacity to have a relationship with God and to experience freedom and blessing. And thus we see Christ's power here in the service of Christ's love. Now these episodes in the Gospels, there will be more, serve to remind us that the demonic realm is real, it is active, and it is very, very powerful. In Ephesians 6.12, we read these words, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, our battle is not physical but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul there mixes no words. He just says, listen, there is a very real spiritual battle that we are all engaged in 24-7. If we could peel back the curtain... Between this physical realm and the spiritual realm, we would see activity going crazy right now as the word of God is being preached. As our hearts are being nourished in our faith, we would see cosmic things happening right now. There is spiritual battle going on every single day. And so while full-fledged demonic possession is relatively rare, demonic influence is widespread and pervasive. In fact, we know that apart from Christ, all people have been taken captive to do the bidding of the devil. Are you aware of that? Here's what we read in 2 Timothy 2.24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses, notice, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, what a terrifying verse. 
that apart from people receiving the truth and being led by God to repentance and faith in Jesus, the people that you love and I love and, and care about that are not Christians, they have actually been taken captive by the devil to do his will. I mean, that's so heavy to think about and it just reinforces how necessary it is and how urgent it is for us to share the truth with the people that we love. Every single non-Christian is under the influence of the devil to varying degrees. And the fact that from time to time the demons gain such a foothold in a person's life that we can only aptly describe it as demon possession should not surprise us. But for every non-Christian who is to some degree under the influence of the devil, the answer is one and the same. They need Jesus. Just like this man in Capernaum. Jesus alone has authority over the demons. He is the one who through his death and his resurrection has triumphed over all principalities and powers. He is the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. And he's the only one who can free us to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than the influence of unclean spirits. So friends, we've seen together the unrivaled authority of Jesus through first his authoritative teaching and second through his authority over the demons. There's one more step here. Now we see it through his authority over disease starting in verse 29. Verse 29 says this, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, you don't have to be in the ministry to imagine that a morning filled with teaching the scriptures And ministering to people would be tiring for a person. If you add to that the exorcism of a demon out of somebody, we could probably rightfully assume that as Jesus and his disciples leave the synagogue that day, and they go back to Andrew and Simon's house, they're probably ready for lunch and a nap. They're probably pretty worn out. But they walk through the door and a brand new need presents itself. Simon's mother-in-law is lying there and she's sick with a fever. Now, remind ourselves here today that a fever in the ancient world was a very, very serious thing. We get fevers, we're not concerned about it because we have medicines we can take. The fever is no big deal, but this could be a life-threatening thing 2,000 years ago. She is bedridden right now with this fever. She's extremely sick And the people know it. And so what do they do? Well, it says they immediately told him about her. This is an aside, but I just love how their first response to this brand new need that presents itself is, we should just take it to Jesus. They go and they tell Jesus about her sickness. And observe the contrast here between the way that Jesus was dealing with the demon in the synagogue and how he's now dealing with Simon's mother-in-law. Toward the demon, Jesus is strong. He's demanding. Again, he just speaks a word. He says, shut up and come out of him. And yet here with Simon's mother-in-law, we see Jesus, the same Jesus. He's completely gentle. He's kind. He's tender with her. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her to her feet. And immediately we read that she recovers 
So full is her recovery that she actually gets on her feet and she just starts serving her son-in-law and all of his new friends. And this shows us the completeness of the healing that Jesus gave to this woman. I mean, when you're sick with a serious fever, the last thing that you want to do is get up and serve everybody else. Right? I know when I get a fever... I'm like laying down sick. I'm not excited about getting up and cooking food. I'm not trying to do anything around the house. And my wife, Erica, would probably push back and go, yeah, it's called a man cold, Daniel. Because when I get sick, I still get up and take care of all you guys. Which I would not deny that. That's very true. And I've seen women and their strength that even when they're sick, they still put the needs of everybody else ahead of their own and they serve. And so I don't take anything away from that. Your strength is noted, ladies. And all the wise men said, amen. (laughs) However, ladies, when you're really sick, when you're extremely sick, you're not getting up either. Notice Simon's mother-in-law, according to this verse, she lay ill with a fever. Translation, she was down for the count. She was extremely sick. Again, potentially even on her deathbed here. And yet now she's on her feet and she's actively serving everybody in the home. This was a miraculous and a complete healing. The other thing that this shows us though is the proper response to being healed by Jesus. Immediately after being touched by the Lord Jesus, this woman gets up and she just wants to serve. And anybody who's truly experienced healing from Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, being reconciled to God, having all of your guilt removed, experiencing God's peace, anybody who's experienced healing in Jesus Christ, the automatic response of your life is, I want to serve him. I want to give my life to him. I want to devote myself to serving Jesus and his desires and his will. You just can't help it. I wonder if you've found that to be true yet in your life. Let's not miss an obvious application before we close. Jesus healed her sickness. And below, he's going to heal all sorts of diseases. The obvious application is that Jesus is a healer. And Jesus still heals people today. And so we ought to, as people of faith, bring our sick to Jesus in prayer. In fact, in the book of James, in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15... James writes this, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. When was the last time you had the elders or the pastors of the church pray over you and anoint you asking for your healing? Oftentimes it's the case that Coming to Jesus is sort of our last resort after we've tried everything else and we realize, oh boy, I'm really, really sick and I don't know that I'm going to recover. Then we bring our sickness to the Lord. Instead, first, we're quick to just jump on WebMD and then we diagnose ourselves and we go, oh my gosh, this mild headache is actually a brain tumor and now I'm going to go to urgent care. But these people, they bring her to Jesus and they later bring all of their sick to Jesus and Jesus is happy to heal them. He's just willing to touch them and remove all of their infirmities. And so friends, we ought to be filled with faith and saying, 
every time we're sick. Certainly with all of our diseases, we ought to be fervent in prayer, bringing these things to the Lord and asking him to touch and to heal us. And so often he's gracious enough to do that. Well, the final scene here now turns to evening. And guess what? The ministry opportunities keep on multiplying. No rest for the weary. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Notice as this passage closes, it's not just the disciples anymore who are bringing their sick to Jesus. It's all of these people. His fame was spreading throughout Capernaum, and they're going, oh my gosh, there's a teacher and a healer here at Simon and Andrew's house and they're just gathering up everybody. Hey, we know a few other guys who have got demons. Let's bring them to Jesus. Oh, we have other sick people. Let's bring them to Jesus. And everyone in need is brought to him and he heals the sick and he casts out the demons. And it's this beautiful picture of liberation and deliverance and healing. And it's all brought about by the entrance of Jesus into the town of Capernaum on this particular Sabbath day. And friends, this is the impact that Jesus has on every life, every family, every community that he enters into. With Jesus comes healing and deliverance and blessing. Already in the first chapter of his book, Mark is helping us as his readers to see that Jesus of Nazareth is no ordinary man. As he said in his very first verse, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah of God and he's the Son of God. This was confirmed at his baptism as a voice from heaven spoke over him and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now it's on display as the authority of Jesus is revealed through his authoritative teaching, his authority over demons and his authority over disease. And so we're meant to ask ourselves this question as we consider this passage, who is like Jesus? There's none like him. Whose words can capture our attention and cut us to the heart? Whose word can send the demons running? Whose word can eradicate disease? Only Jesus. And so it is fitting that Jesus' name is the name that is above all names. And it is fitting that we, the followers of Jesus, have his name ever on our lips. So let's pray together, and then we're going to praise his name through song. Jesus, we do stand in awe this morning of who you are. We are astonished at your teaching and at your unbelievable and unparalleled power. Jesus, today we recognize that you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one sent into the world to deliver us from our sins, to give us everlasting life. We recognize and acknowledge this morning that you are the Son of God. And because of that, we wholeheartedly surrender our lives to you. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our obedience. And so, Jesus, we offer all of that to you today. And we pray that you would continue this week and even beyond this week, that you would continue to grow our faith 
And that you would grow our obedience to you, Jesus. That we would become more fully formed disciples who treasure you and love you and follow you and also share you with others around us. So Jesus, we thank you for your love today that's on display as you cared for all of these precious people 2,000 years ago. We thank you for your love that was ultimately put on display at the cross where you died for our sins. We worship you as our Lord and Savior, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.